The following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I've, uh, I've enjoyed this weekend with you guys. I feel like um, you're my other family. You're almost like a Mormon guy with two families, you know. And uh, When I'm not at harvest, I don't feel like I'm with strangers when I'm with you guys. So I'm really grateful for the welcome you've given. I'm so glad that Jeannie could be with me this weekend. It made it a much uh, greater experience for me. And this morning, I want to end our weekend together looking at a fourth thing. Now, I think maybe my guess is most of you will be a little surprised by what direction this message takes. If it's what you thought it was going to be, it would be a really lame way to end a retreat. Is to just tell you, get out there and work harder. But that's not really what sloth as one of the seven deadly sins is about. I wonder what images pop into your... Thanks, Dave. What, um, what images pop into your mind when you hear the word sloth? This thing is disobeying me. There you go. I think sloths are the cutest animals on earth. If I could have a pet sloth and not lose my wife, I, I think I would have a pet sloth. This animal has come to symbolize, in fact, we use the name of the, I don't know which came first, the name of the animal or the human quality. That'd be an interesting thing to find out. But sloths, if you ever watch them, they are never in a hurry. This is how they run out of a burning building. Right? I mean, it's just everything slow. It's like there's no motivation, no oomph. It's as if their whole job is simply to exist. And I think that's actually a good picture of what we conceive of often when we think about sloth. It's this real kind of passivity inside. Maybe another image you think of is that of a couch potato. This thing is no longer obeying me. You, you're going to have to just intuit. And when you see me do this, just, okay. Uh, <clears throat> this is another modern conception of a sloth. Somebody who is comfortable on the couch. Netflix was invented for people who love the couch because you could sit there and watch an entire season. It used to take us 20 weeks. Now you can do it in one day. And it's a person who won't get off the place of comfort to engage the world for whatever reason. And I don't want to be overly harsh towards couch potatoes because I went through a season when I was turning into one for a while and it wasn't because of laziness. It was because of pain and disappointment with myself. A lot of things drive a person to give up on life. And so there's an element of sloth in common vernacular usage that makes us think of things like a person who's just totally irresponsible, disengaged, lazy, unreliable. And that is an element of it, to be sure, but that's not really what the early desert fathers thought of when they added sloth to the list of seven deadly sins. They acknowledged that laziness is damaging to the person, but not, not in and of itself dangerous enough to make it to the list 
of the seven most toxic distortions of the human soul. So what is it then? Because if sloth is not just laziness, and by the way, God definitely has something to say about laziness. He's not okay with it. Uh, he does have something to say. I remember when I was in high school, my father found it very frustrating trying to wake me up in the morning. And so he taped a piece of eight and a half by 11 paper on which he had handwritten Proverbs 6, 6 through 11, which begins, How long will you lie there, you sluggard? <laughs> now, I remember my mom used to come in the room and go, Wake up, you're going to be late for school. And she would make a lot of noise. And after a while, it was such a consistent, unpleasant noise. I, my ear trained to drown it out. She could stand at the door and yell at me, and I was dead to the world. But by some mystery, my dad putting that passage of scripture on my headboard, and I left the tape there for like a year. Like, it convicted me so much. I can't explain. I wasn't even a Christian at the time. I saw it, and I'm like, that really bothers me. It's worse than if he had spanked me or yelled at me. And that word of God was powerful, and it revealed to me that God is not honored by laziness. He's honored by hard work. He works hard for us. He gave us the gift of the value of hard work. And so diligence matters, and laziness is not a good thing. But that is not what I'm going to talk about today, because that's not what this, the deadly sin of sloth is about. Sloth is also not just about leisure. In a workaholic culture like ours, leisure is actually a virtue. Most of us need to get better at true leisure. Not the kind of, of leisure, or I'll use air quotes there, the leisure that makes you exhausted. Vacations where every minute is scheduled to the hilt with an activity, and the, the, your other partner, usually marriages are made up of two people, one who likes to be constantly busy, and the other is like, I hate you. We've come to a tropical paradise and have not seen the tropical paradise. We've seen the inside of buses and tourist traps. So we need to learn the value of just letting ourselves rest. The Italians have this really interesting phrase called dolce far niente. I don't think I pronounced it right. But literally translated means sweet doing nothing. Oh, man. It's a kind of flavor in their culture. Those days, and you've all experienced it, even if you're not Italian, that day where you wake up on a Saturday and you realize, oh my gosh, the kids have no games. I have no appointments. Sorry, Peter. There's no appointments. There's nothing going on at church. Nothing. I am free. I could do anything with this day that I want. And it's that idea of no external pressure on you. And today, if you wanted to, you could just spend the whole day doing sweet nothing. Bliss, pleasure, comfort, and freedom. And I love that phrase because I think the truth is to be healthy human beings, we need days like that. We should seek days like that. Don't become addicted to them. Don't waste them doing furious recreation that doesn't actually recreate you. Do you know it's really tiring to watch 10 episodes of a show? I think that takes as much energy as reading 10 hours of a book. We just don't realize how exhausting it is. So we do need that, but that is not even what sloth is about. Sloth is not about a person lazing about, enjoying a day without responsibility, reveling 
and freedom and a little peace from the regular grinding responsibilities of life. So if that is not what sloth is, what is it? And I will give credit where credit is due. Let me give you a painting that helped me understand a little bit. Are you guys familiar with Hieronymus Bosch? There's a, a fictional LAPD detective named Hieronymus Bosch who's got a, a TV show on Amazon now. And I, I read a number of those novels. That's not, I found out that Hieronymus Bosch is actually the name of a, a 16th century Dutch painter. And he, drew, he painted these really detailed uh, paintings of religious themes. And this one was on the seven deadly sins. The, and he did it in a circular view. That's the section on sloth. And I want to blow it up here. Uh, it's of an aristocratic, well-to-do man. He's clearly a noble. He's sitting in a, a pillowed chair in front of a warm fire with his dog curled up sleeping at his feet. And he is just in bliss. He is lost to the world. He is having a sweet, doing-nothing day. And there is a nun holding out to him a rosary and a Bible. And this begins to give us a clue as to what the Desert Fathers meant when they referred to sloth. It is not just a generic aversion to work and responsibility. It is not laziness with, with respect to work and, and um, productivity. It is a passivity, at least in part, towards God himself. I want to explore the meaning of sloth, and I really want to credit this woman. Her name is Rebecca DeYoung. She's got a middle name she always uses, but I have no clue how to pronounce it, so I'm not going to include it. It's up there, Conondike or something like that. Um, but she's a professor at Calvin College. She's a, she teaches philosophy, and she wrote a book, a commentary on the seven deadly sins. It's called Glittering Vices. I found it to be, of the seven books I read for this series, the most helpful. Her thinking has really shaped the way I think about this, and I'm indebted to her. And so I don't want to claim credit for many of these ideas. She is a brilliant thinker, and the way she's conceived of sloth, I think she's tapped into what the church fathers really meant to communicate when they said this belongs on a list. I first came across sloth, and I'm like, okay, seven deadly sins. It doesn't feel like sloth belongs on that list. It seems like other things should be on there, like hatred or murder or something, but sloth, how does that end up on a list of seven deadly sins? By the time I read her chapter on, on it, I was convinced that this may be one of the worst of the seven deadly sins. So what is the meaning of sloth? We get a clue as to the meaning of this word by thinking about its opposite. What is the opposite of sloth or laziness? What's one word that comes to mind? Diligence, right? And this is a very common word. But the Latin root of the word diligence, diligere, I'm sure I butchered the pronunciation, Latin scholars, how would you, is that right? Diligere or diligere? The Latin root of that word means, it's a verb, to respect or esteem or love. I thought it was really weird. Like, I thought diligence was about producing, being industrious, working hard, running fast. But the root of the Latin word for diligence is to love, to respect or esteem. I think that's what the desert fathers were latching onto, is that sloth as a deadly sin, sloth as they conceived it, is dereliction of love. It's the same dynamics of laziness, um, but applied to the call and requirements of love 
in relationships. And that's powerful to me. See, laziness is this. <clears throat> it's like saying to your kid in high school, you know the term paper's due tomorrow, right? And they're still on Fortnite. Yeah, I know, I got it, don't worry. And you're like, you know, right? They know. Lazy people know exactly what they're not doing. They're not lazy because of ignorance. Oh my gosh, I actually have to write the term paper? Buy tomorrow? Give it to my... They know. They're lazy not because of ignorance, but they know what is required and they just won't do it. Reminding a lazy person of what is required is stupidity because they already know and they've chosen not to do it. And just hounding them, you know, you know, right, you know, right? You will become a mosquito buzzing in the ear because they've already made a fundamental choice to know and yet not do. Every day I open my wallet in the mid-90s when I had a lifetime membership, I was reminded that the card was so pristine because the only time I'd taken it out was when I went to get the photo taken and then they give me a new card with the photo. It, to my great shame, I will say I was a lifetime fitness member for three months, which is to say I was the owner of a lifetime membership card <laughs> for three months. I didn't start getting healthier until I dumped the card and just started doing stuff right at home. That's another story. <laughs> the point is, lazy people know what is required, and they've made a fundamental choice not to do it. And that same principle is applied by the Desert Fathers to the requirements of love. Whether it's love for God or love for other people, we're not clueless as to what is being asked of us. We just can't or won't go there. And there are reasons why. I don't want to um, overly indict people stuck in this place because many people have tried very hard in relationships to love God and to love others, and they've come up empty and are frustrated and hurt, and that's the reason they are giving up on love altogether. But I want to be clear that the definition of sloth is resistance, often passive, sometimes active resistance to the requirements of love. Are you with me? So here's what Professor DeYoung writes in her book. I'm, I'm going to quote her uh, rather extensively throughout this message. She says, loving another person, and by the way, as I share all this, because we're talking largely about community, I'm focusing most of my attention on horizontal relationships with other people. But bear in mind what Pastor Reggie has repeatedly reminded us. It begins with communion with God. If you don't establish that, then community with other people is virtually impossible. So let's have that as the backdrop, is that everything I'm saying about community with other people can also be applied in our relationship with God and must be. So keep that in mind. She says, loving another person requires a thousand little deaths of our old individual selfish nature. This is the work that the slothful one resists. The slothful person doesn't resist the need to take out the garbage or wash the dishes or get to work by 8 a.m. That's not where sloth shows up. But they won't do the work of loving a person through self-death after self-death. They know it's required. They know they can't repair this relationship in any other way, but they just have decided, I won't and I can't. I'm just not going to anymore. The slothful person 
resists the effort of doing day after day after day. That third, that third day really makes a point. Day after day after day. Whatever it takes to keep the, the bonds of love strong and living and healthy, whether he or she feels particularly inspired about doing it or not. In other words, to really love anyone, God or other people, requires a thousand little deaths and a day after day after day choice to do those things that keep the bonds of love strong. And the, the reason that love falls apart most often is not because I don't know how, but I don't want to anymore. I could, but I won't. I'm able to, but I choose not to. I already mentioned that people get to this place often. Some people are just flat out lazy in everything, including relationships. You cannot, they're literally potatoes. You can't get them to care about anything. And that may be related to mental health issues, or it may just be a deep, deep character flaw embedded from birth through upbringing. But the majority of people who are in this place of sloth got there because they were deeply frustrated and hurt. They did try. And I, I hear this. I'll tell someone, keep pressing into God. And they're like, I don't understand the point. For five years, I prayed for revival. I've done everything it takes. I've gone to the retreats and nothing happens. I don't feel anything. He's like dead to me. He seems impossibly far away, cold. If God is so real and I'm so desperate to know him, what is it going to take? And I don't really know the answer to that. What I do know is that God has promised that relentless pursuit of him will not end up in futility. It is not wasted time to pursue God. But I don't have the magic number of how long it will take you to experience God. My two older kids found their calling almost right away in college. My third is going into the university having no clue what he wants to do. Calling is like that kind of mystery thing where how long does it take for a person to find their calling? Some people, it takes 20 years to figure out why they're on the earth. Others within months. It's a mystery, but I know that you cannot just give up on calling because it doesn't happen for you right away. Because God does have a calling on your life. And it's the same way with love. I don't know when things are going to blossom, things are going to turn around, but I do know that when we give up the pursuit, we seal that matter permanently. The choice to not pursue is the choice to expediently pursue death in that relationship. Professor DeYoung says, sloth is not first a feeling. You may think it's a feeling, like I, don't, I just feel dead inside. It's not a feeling, but first it is a decision we made. That in this relationship, I am not going to give what is required anymore. And some of you are in that very place. You have, it maybe in your marriage, in a friendship with your child or your parent, a sibling, a coworker, you have really tried. And I've, I've talked to church members at Harvest who have outlined, they've even cataloged in a journal, here's all the ways I've tried for how long. What else could be required of me? And my only answer for them is more of the same. I don't know when the breakthrough will come. But if you give up now, I can guarantee you what the outcome will be. There's no mystery any longer. I can guarantee you what will happen. I want to validate your experience. 
if you're tempted to give up on God and give up on others because you've been burned, disappointed, hurt so many times, I want to validate your experience. I'm not scolding you. I'm not telling you shame on you, just try harder. I'm saying I absolutely understand what it feels like to want to stop because there's no reward, there's no payoff. You try and you try and you try hoping for just one glimpse of the other person reciprocating the thing you've been trying to get. I'm dropping hints, I'm trying to, and you're just not getting it. And everything in your flesh is saying, what's the point? Just, just give up. And I want to validate that experience and tell you that God knows your heart and He shares that pain with you. It's real. And I know that the temptation to give up when you're frustrated and hurt is so powerful. And that's how sloth is born in the heart. Is out of that frustration, the futility, the disappointment, a decision begins to bloom that the best way to deal with this disappointment is to just stop trying it all. It's best described, I think, as active passivity. Right? That's an oxymoron for you, active passivity. Part of the reason we give up on God and on relationships is because we begin to, to suspect, just like with envy, that God has been fundamentally unfair towards us. He has asked us to do this, but has not given us any of what is required. He stacked the deck against us. He's told us to be a good father, a good mother. If I had your kids, I could be a good mother or a good father, but I got my kids. My kids are a mess. What takes you one word takes me six weeks in an iPad. Bribes, threats. If I had your kid, I could be a good dad. With my kid, not so much. He's asked me to be a faithful husband. If I had your wife, it'd be easy. Look at her. She's just always doing everything right. My, and so we're always thinking, somehow I feel like the deck was stacked against me and I got ripped off. God keeps demanding things, but not giving me what I need. It's like the Israelites trying to make bricks and the Egyptians take away their hay and straw. Why do you keep asking me for stuff? And not give me what I need. So that's the growing suspicion and the indictment of God that leads to sloth. Is God, it's your fault ultimately because you make this an impossible task. You've given me something to do and then you've not given me any of the tools to do it. And I understand that based on our experience, it can feel that way. What I so appreciated about what Pastor Reggie shared last night was when he said, the story isn't finished. If you took snapshots of that journey along the way, at times it would have appeared and felt hopeless. That's why we keep seeing movies, especially in America. What American movie ends sadly? You want sad endings, watch a Korean movie. <laughs> you watch an American movie, there's no mystery at all how it's going to end. But... We keep watching because along the way, they create crises and tensions and conflicts and make us go, oh my gosh, he's, in he's never in danger. Just give you a spoiler right now. If you watch an American movie, the good guy will almost never die. So stop being so scared. <laughs> I can't believe the horror movie industry still works when the monster is vanquished at the end every time. But that's because if you stop watching in the middle, every movie in America looks like a movie about failure and defeat. 
You finish watching the movie, and you're like, that's how it's supposed to be. The good guys always win. <laughs> Sloth is what kicks in as a coping mechanism when I do not have the faith or the perseverance to let this movie finish playing out. And the, the fastest way to give up is to believe that there's no way this can work. That God himself has made it impossible to persevere. I, I want to look at 2 Peter 1, 3-7 very briefly as a jumping off point. Because Peter understood this tension. I think as a passionate person, he felt the same emotions that give birth to sloth. He went from being the biggest idiot in Jesus' crew to the greatest of the pastors among them. And he says to the flock, here's a, a, a promise you can be assured of. His divine power, listen to this, has given us everything we need for a godly life. No matter what your eyes are telling you, God has not stacked the deck against you. At the end of the day, the godly life he's called you to, he has supplied already everything that you need. Everything that you need. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, in other words, what we have is not resources, advantages. What we have is Jesus himself by our side And he's not more with one than with another. For every Christ follower, that is the gift we have been given generously and in full. Is the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. So that through them, you may participate in the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So along with the, the real presence and a relationship with Jesus, one of the things he's equipped us with is a promise that I will give you the deepest kind of relationship with me. That's a promise he's given. It may not be fulfilled in this moment or this season, but it is not a conditional promise. It's not a temporary promise. It's not a promise that is fragile. It is going to be your destiny. And he has given that to you from the start. The idea that God has robbed us of the resources we need to live a godly and fulfilling life is a lie that does not come from God. It comes from his enemy. Every time you feel a spirit in you to quit, it does not come from God, but from his adversary. Because our God is a God who repairs, redeems, restores. Our God is not a quitting God. He's a fighting God. And every time your best solution is to quit, that impulse comes from the brokenness of sin and from the voice of the enemy. It never comes from God. The only thing God tells you to quit is sin and foolishness. That you should quit. But everything else, the voice of quitting, comes from the enemy. And so he says, for this very reason, because everything is already given to you that you need, now you make every effort. The call for us to be persevering and to make every effort never comes before God's promise of provision. We can make every effort because everything needed is there. I've tried to protest to Joe many times at basketball. My knees are shot. I can't do CrossFit. Oh, you can do CrossFit. Crippled people are doing CrossFit. Trust me, you can do it. 
And he's like, gosh, all right. So I finally just told him, I can't afford it, Joe. It's too expensive. But his point is, there is not a built-in handicap in me that prevents me. I could do it if I wanted to. I just don't want to. And because everything needed is there, it's okay for him to keep telling me, join CrossFit. Now, if I were a quadriplegic, it would be cruel for him to keep saying that to me. But I'm not in that condition by the grace of God. And so because everything necessary to advance is present, the push is valid. We don't push people to do things for which they are terribly ill-equipped. That's cruelty, and God is not cruel. So he says to us, because I've already given you everything you need for a godly life, now I can say to you, make every effort. Make every effort in what? To add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, Love. These are traits that if you really reflect on them, you'll find that they really help a human being pursue communion with God and community with other people. It is the failing of each of those traits that leads to the breakdown of our relationship with God and with other people. So Peter reminds us that we are called to make every effort to not be passive and slothful in relationships because he has given us everything we already need to experience communion and community. Being diligent in love is never a wasted effort. Sometimes it feels like it has been, and I'm not here to argue that with you. Until now, it probably has been very unfruitful, unresponsive. I felt that way at times with people at our church, with members of my family, where I long for breakthrough, for something different, and it doesn't happen on my timetable. And I'm not imagining things. There is real resistance there. What do I do with that? The heart of God is always keep pressing on. I read this prayer written by somebody, and it's so beautiful. I just want to share with you. It says, forgive me for letting love die when it demands action in order to live. We often say that love died because we just fell out of love, or the magic disappeared, the spark was gone. But love always dies because the actions required for love are simply no longer chosen. Love always dies as a decision. It doesn't fade as a feeling. It always dies as a decision. What forms does sloth take? If sloth is primarily a resistance to the demands of love in a relationship, that I know what this relationship requires, I'm just done giving it. In the words of the millennials, I'm trying to can and I can't even, right? Like, just, I'm done. I think that phrase in today's common usage captures so well the spirit of quitting. I'm done. We used to say that back in the day, but didn't carry the same force as it does today. It feels so finished when someone today says, no, I'm done. And they usually accompany that with walking physically out of the room. So what does sloth look like then? The Latin word for sloth is acedia. I probably mispronounced that too. I should have taken Latin. 
The Latin for sloth is acedia. And Kathleen Norris, who's a poet and a writer, she wrote a book called Acedia and Me. What a weird title for a book. But she realized that as she studied the desert fathers and the seven deadly sins, she came to sloth and its description, and she found a perfect description of a feeling she'd had. So she said this, It gave word to a feeling I've had ever since adolescence, a sense of restlessness bookended between periods of sheer apathy and frenetic busyness. These are the two faces that sloth as a deadly sin wears. One is total apathy and the other is frenetic busyness. Here's the irony. Some of the most fast-moving, industrious, diligent people are the most slothful as well. So let me unpack this for you a little bit. Remember that sloth as a deadly sin, a spiritual vice, is laziness applied to love. It's knowing what's needed and just not willing to do it. It's not ignorance. It's not being ill-equipped. It's simply choosing to be finished trying. When a person is frustrated in a relationship where they yearn for closeness but can't seem to find a way to get it, and that's where love turns into hatred is, I want to love you, and I want you to love me. I don't want another person. I want you, but you don't seem to want to give me back. And so then I found another person. I wanted you. I picked you. You were my first choice. But then you didn't want me. So I went and found another. That's the dynamic, right? Is you're so frustrated and hurt. You're, you've been trying, you've been trying, you've been trying, and now you're giving up. And when a person's stuck there, Sloth takes two main forms. The first is apathy. Apathy. And apathy can be regarded as despairing resignation. That's one way people embrace sloth is they go, you know what? I'm not just going to fight you. I'm just going to stop caring. I give, I quit. I am dead to the, I will be a zombie in this place. I won't physically go anywhere. But I will be dead inside from now on. And you know when a person's reached this point. You stare at them and it's like, like there's nothing in there. No spark. No warmth. There's just this chosen, rehearsed, reinforced coldness and deadness. It's the temptation to just give up. It's passivity taken to an extreme. And that's the choice that many people make when they try and try and try and find that love is not reciprocated, I yearn for communion, I yearn for community, and I can't find it. And the choice that's most common is to just give up. It's why a lot of people leave churches and marriages and friendships and families. It's why people go from job to job, quitting as a way of dealing with frustration in love is a very short-sighted remedy. But it's the one that most people seem to take. It's the death of hope, which is why it doesn't just affect our relationship with people, it affects our relationship with God, because when hope dies, it cannot be separated from the place of God in our lives. As long as God is God, hope should live, because God gives us a hope. But when hope dies, that means at some point, we've given up ultimately even on God. Could this be the expression that sloth takes in your life most commonly? I'm not leaving you. I mean, we have the kids and everything, but you're not gonna, what you're going to get from me is like a 
soggy potato. Hi, honey. Hey. What you do today? Just stuff, you know. And you just checked out. And sometimes the partner is so oblivious that for like five years, they're like, oh, my marriage got easier. Oh, you idiot. Your marriage didn't just get easier. It's, di- it's dying. It's almost dead. But because it, re- it seems to require less from you, you're like on easy street. You're going, hey, she's so compliant. He's so easy to be around. No, he's just died to you. You don't matter anymore. She doesn't even get mad at me anymore. Do you know that therapists say that the inability to get angry is the first sign of the death of a relationship? That when it's the ultimate sign I don't care about you is you can't even make me mad. I've got to actually care about you to get mad about you. But if you can't even get me angry, that means you are no longer a person in my life. I've killed you already. You don't matter. That's why my kids get me mad, but your kids can do whatever they want. They don't get me mad. I'm like, ah, it must suck to be in that house right now. <laughs> because they're your kids, right? Yes, I love your kids in a general Jesus-like sense, but my kids have the power to do something to me. Because you've got to care to get mad. So sometimes people are like, they haven't gotten mad in like five years. That's because your marriage died five years ago and you don't even know it yet. You have to get mad at certain situations. It's supposed to happen. You're not supposed to be okay with this, but they have been because they died a while ago. So apathy is one very common expression of sloth. Another one is avoidance. If I can't get what I want from this, you could either give up or the other is desperate escapism or the temptation to get out. If, so apathy is I'm going to stay here, but I'm not going to be here. Avoidance is, I'm going to escape in every way I can. I'm going to distract myself because I know what these relationships require, but it's too much, it's too heavy. I can't give what love requires, but often in that avoidance methodology, that desperate escapism, it's marked by furious activity. That's why Kathleen Norris made the observation she made, acedia is my life. Seasons of total checking out and apathy and interspersed with total seasons of frenetic activity, busyness. And even in the busyness, it doesn't mean you're not being slothful. It means you're working really hard at easy stuff because you don't want to work really hard at the hard stuff. The demands of love overwhelm you, so you're furiously productive and busy doing other things. Let me give you some examples, common examples of avoidance. It's constant socializing. Do you know a person who is out every night doing something every weekend, and when there's nothing to look forward to, they are anxious. They're like, oh my God, honey, there's nothing this weekend. We're going to just stay at home and like be home. And it terrifies them. It makes them feel like claustrophobic, trapped. We've got we to gotta call up somebody. What do you think they're doing this weekend? And it's not because you like people. It's because you're desperate to do something that keeps you distracted. There's consumption, excessive consumption. Binge-watching Netflix isn't just because you like television. It's often getting lost in fictional stories because your own real-life story overwhelms you. So you care about the dragon queen. She's not real. They're not even burning real stage sets. I mean, let me tell you something. We care so much. People are like, the worst crime you can commit today is give a spoiler to a movie. To ruin a fictional story. 
while at the same time, half the audience has a real-life story that is crumbling to ashes, and they don't seem as bothered by that. Excessive consumption takes diligence, and we do it because we're terrified of sitting still. Workaholism, getting lost at the office, because that's a place where I know where, where I stand. I feel empowered. There's a direct cause and effect. I work hard, I get a promotion. I work hard, I get more money. I work hard, I get the favor of my bosses. Respect. Then I come home, and I'm no longer vice president of this. I'm the guy who has to take the baby and change his diaper and be yelled at because I came home and I missed dinner. And so we bury ourselves in a place where we feel empowered and safe. Here's a, here's a danger. Doing lots of ministry. Now, I want, this is why i got to give the disclaimer. These are not all bad things. Don't look at everybody who is socially active and go, what are you running from? <laughs> the point is not to cast suspicion on these, but say every one of these things can be a pretty, maybe not excessive consumption. Consumption and hard work can be okay. But don't be suspicious. Just know that when it's happening in you, you've got to be very discerning what's really going on. What's really going on? Sometimes people do lots of ministry because God's got a hold of them. And sometimes people do lots of ministry because they're trying to scrub away the, the stain of a sin or because they know that that's a safe place to get very lost and distracted. And if you say to your pastor, I'm available, what should I do? They will have you booked for every day of every week until you die. I safely can promise you that. If you make yourself available at church, you will be busy and never have to think about anything else. The more open you are, the more at work you will be. Getting lost in activism for a cause. Caring, raging about something like, and, and it's real, it's important, but it's so removed from you. Injustice, this and that, immigration, and all that. And yet, it's still so far removed, but it gives you the warmth of agitation and rage and outrage. And yet, in your own life, everything is falling apart, and you're not nearly as activistic about that. It's strange to watch a person care so much about immigration and care so little about the aliens in his own house. But I've seen it. I've seen it. Other times it's like a major undertaking. Let's remodel the whole house, honey. Every room, all at one time. Why? Because I don't want to love you. <laughs> I want something else to give me spreadsheets and endless meetings and decisions because otherwise we'd have to actually build a family here. I'd rather just upgrade the house. That's, that keeps us all busy. And for a while it feels like love because we're out picking life pictures and for a minute it's like we're not enemies and maybe we're on the same side, but really the disease remains. Let's start another business. Why? I don't know. Because I can't bear the way I feel inside. See, all of these things can be totally innocent. But they could also be ways of dealing with the fact that I am grieved. I cannot get communion with God and community with you. And so either I give up and I check out, I deaden my heart, or I get out, I escape, either in the realm of fantasy or I actually leave. And we're constantly distracting ourselves trying not to think about the demands of love that are standing right in front of us. What's the, primate, what's the remedy then for sloth? Uh, let me cruise here. I'll give you the remedy. <clears throat> the primary relationship is not with each other. It is with God. 
That's the, the first thing the Desert Fathers taught us. So that when they talked about the seven deadly sins, they were first framed as those distortions in our heart that get in the way of communion with God. But then as these hermit monks started to find each other and form communities in the desert, they realized the same set of seven deadly sins breaks community with one another. So that's the order we have to take it. And <clears throat> what they would say is the worst time for sloth was that midday time. Remember in the first message I talked about how these crazy self-loathing monks would schedule their midday meal at 3 p.m., knowing they'd be starving by noon and wanting three hours of wrestling with hunger. Who does that? And for those three hours at the hottest time of the day, they would, remember, they're in the desert. They're called the Desert Fathers. No AC. They're sitting in a, a claustrophobic little cell for three hours, digging into their relationship with God, with themselves, and ultimately with other people too. And in that three hours, they would claim that some insanity ensued. Weird voices would come up, and they would hear voices like, what are you doing in here? This is such a stupid waste of your life. You could be serving God so much more effectively out there. Why are you holed up in a room? Give up. And then other thoughts would come up like, oh, that other monastery has a much richer brotherly life. I should just go there. Church hopping was a thing even before <laughs> these desert fathers were by themselves in a, in a cell. That idea of, I'm sure it's better at the other church. If you want to, to test that theory, come to Harvest and you will find yourself disappointed very quickly again. So <laughs> changing churches is not the answer. The Desert Fathers had a remedy for sloth, and when I learned it, it really surprised me. Because I thought, if I'm in a place of such futility, where I can't, I'm, I'm tempted to give up on loving God and loving others, I thought the answer would be to give it a fresh spark. Is your marriage kind of dull? Go to Cancun. It'll spark up everything. Well, it will if the marriage is already healthy. If it doesn't, it won't help very much at all. You'll just be broke. I thought the answer to sloth was to renew my zeal for a thing. To find some interesting, creative way to feel excited about it again. And that's the answer most people have when a relationship is dying. Spice it up a little. Bam! Do a little this or that. Here's the ancient strategy. The ancient strategy against sloth seems counterintuitive. Rather than seeking some new way to infuse life and breath into one's relationship with God, the Desert Fathers recommended stabilitas loci, stability of place. Here's what they mean. If the, the temptation of sloth is to give up or to get out, then the remedy is to stay put and bear down. These monks in their journals would write things like this. I went out every five minutes to see if the sun had moved to the sky, and it was as if from 12 to 3, time stood still, and 12 to 3 felt like 24 hours. The sun would not move. I thought I was in a, a period of dreamlike trance, Everything in me was screaming, get out of my cell and flee back to the city and re-engage the world. And the abbots in the monastery would come up to these monks and say, I know exactly what you feel. It's why we designed it this way. 
If you really want to break through that barrier, don't run. Stay. Because in the staying, God will meet you in ways that he will never meet you when you run. Let me give you an illustration of what this feels like emotionally. My son Elijah is a pretty good basketball player. I taught him everything he knows. And he finished his high school season, four years played, and then this summer he played for the Park District Rec League. It's where there's, you know, you don't have to have a coach, just kids get together, they form teams and they play. And it's a lot of former high school players, but this time they're playing free range. This is like free range basketball. No set plays, just street ball. And it was so much more fun watching these games than the high school games. I remember one game I went to watch. It was towards the end of the season. They were determining who's going to go to the playoffs. And Elijah's team had seven kids. Two of them were gone, so there's no bench. It's five kids playing all the games that day. They faced up against a team of players that he used to play with on the travel leagues. This is a team with a roster of 12 players and three coaches. This is like Cobra Kai of the rec league. Okay? <laughs> they came in all with their uniforms. They're like, that's kind of intimidating. One of these kids is going D1. And Elijah's got his best friends. They're not the best players. They're just his closest friends from the team. Actually, the, the, sort of the bottom. Of the, so, <clears throat> so Elijah's playing. They're, they're up against it. And they're losing by a lot. And all of a sudden, Elijah comes alive. And he drops 30 points in that game. But with maybe about five minutes left. It's not hopeless, but it's looking that way. And he looks at his teammates, and the body language is clear. The rest of his teammates are already mentally at home playing Fortnite in the basement. <laughs> They're gone. You could see it. They're like, ugh. They're real slow getting down. And he couldn't take anymore. He had dropped four three-pointers in a row. And he looks at his team. They're all dead. And he just yells. And this is one of my favorite phrases from youth culture today. He yells, let's go! Let's go! Now, you sometimes yell that triumphantly when you're killing the other team. But it was powerful for me to watch him say that when they're losing by 20. And his team sucks compared to these other kids. But what he's saying is, I know that everything in you wants this game to be over. To be somewhere else, to give up the playoffs. But everything we need to beat this team is right here. What's missing is your attitude. You guys ended the game before the game ended. You checked out. And he couldn't handle it. He was so He looked at him and go, let's go. His vein is popping. And what's strange is that little thing sparked the team a little bit. Not enough to win. <laughs> but I was so proud of Elijah that day. I was like, that you can't teach. That's genetic. It comes from the heart of a champion. <laughs> You don't teach that, okay? I thought, God, thank you for giving me a son who doesn't lay down and die. Even though you should intellectually lay down and die. This game's over. There's no way you win. But it's this idea, still, it isn't over, so you fight till it's over. What do we say at weddings? Till death do us part. We say those crazy words for a reason because you will be tempted to part for so many lesser reasons along the way. But what God says in covenant authority is only death legitimately separates a man from his wife. And when 1 Corinthians 12, 18 tells us that God himself 
knit together every member of the body according to his purposes. You're not at this church because you chose this church. You're at this church because God is building a body and he brought you from somewhere and knit you into this body. That's how you leave or join a church. It's not just your consumer choice or your preference, but God is knitting together a body. Can you imagine if your pinky one day went, I'm done, I'm leaving. Please don't do that because... This body needs that pinky, and it's going to hurt a lot when you just decide to leave. Leaving is amputation. There's times when it's needed. But we are living in a culture where quitting has become a way of life. And that's why most of us never see the end of the story. I've been at my church for 25 years. Do you realize what a weird, rarefied club I'm in now in America as a pastor? I'll bet you that if we ask for the pastors in America today, currently practicing, who have been at their church for 25 years, it might maybe be a group of about 5,000 at the most. The average tenure of a pastor in the Asian American next-gen world, now increasingly the rest of the mainstream is catching up to that, the average tenure of an EM pastor is two years at any church. The average tenure of another of, of a mainstream pastor is between three to five years, depending on how you measure it. So even pastors hop from church to church. One pastor said, I have exactly three years worth of good sermons. When I'm done, I gotta move on. Because <laughs> I don't want to write new material. These are winners. And so he keeps changing churches when he ends his folder of sermons. I'm like, that is horrific. You are a monster. If the pastors are living like that, can you imagine what the congregation's learning about quitting? Nothing's permanent. And as a result, I can tell you, the reason I started saying that is, over 25 years, I've seen things at my church that no one would see if they left. I've watched redemption stories, resolutions, reconciliations that would have been impossible if I checked out early. I've watched people I thought were never going to make it become leaders at our church. And I've watched people who were leaders become atheists. When you stay, you see the whole movie. And that matters a great deal. If we now lead a church in America filled with people who have never stayed anywhere long enough to know that God actually comes through in the end. They bail every time it's hard. So the only story they remember is, we quit. It's hard, we quit. It's hard, we quit. I love what Pastor Reggie shared yesterday because it reminded me that God writes the endings really well. And when he writes the ending, it's better than the ending we would have written. I'm glad Pastor Reggie landed on his feet and he's just a worship leader. That's so funny. But I'm so thankful that the friendship was restored. And what I see in you, Reggie, is a leader I would follow. I respect you. I admire you. And I see the story God is writing in that. And I think how that informs the way I approach every irreconcilable conflict I see in my life. It'd be so easy to jettison or to leave, to die to myself and just basically check out, numb myself. But I know that God writes the ending very well. Flannery O'Connor, who's a novelist, an American novelist, 
was once interviewed, and she was asked about the demise of the American novel. And she said, people without hope not only don't write novels, but what is more, they don't read them. They don't take long looks at anything because they lack the courage. There is an enjoyment in a novel you don't get from a comic book or a blog post. But nobody reads long-form literature anymore. And it's related. I think this is very insightful what she said. It's because people today in no sector of their life have developed the capacity to take a long look at anything. When people at Harvest tell me, I thought about it a lot. I know what they mean in most cases. I furiously and repetitively thought the same small thought over and over and over. I thought about it a lot. You you thought about it furiously, but you didn't really think about it a lot. Because if you had thought about it a lot, new ideas and convictions might have emerged. But what you did was furiously reinforced your thought over and over. I'm not wrong, they're wrong. I'm not wrong, they're wrong. I'm not wrong. I really thought a lot about whether I'm right or they're wrong. And I convinced myself, I'm right and they're wrong. (laughs) Thinking furiously and thinking a lot are not the same thing. I know this because Steve has always been a think a lot guy, and I have always been a thinking furiously guy. I'm slowly learning to tame the inner monkey and become a little more truly thoughtful and reflective. And it has really been a wonderful thing for me. I want to end with this. One of the practices that I've adopted that has helped me reclaim ground for my natural tendency towards sloth is the practice of a quarterly personal retreat. I used to do this once a month, and then I realized I I just don't have the bandwidth for it. But every quarter, I rent room 241 at University of St. Mary on the Lake in Mundelein. It's a Catholic seminary. I rent the same room because it's a special place for me. God meets me. And I'm not superstitious, but I think there is a theology of place, sacred places. This room for me is holy ground. And I get very distressed when I arrive and Jeannie has forgotten to reserve room 241. This last time I went, she had forgotten. And I'm like, can I still please have 241? Oh, it's not made up yet. Y'all, I slept on a bed someone else had slept in before housekeeping had come. So gross. (laughs) I used the one last clean towel that I thought was clean. Because I wanted to be in this place where God meets me. That's how important it is to me. For three days and two nights, I check out from everything. I don't look at email. I'm not on my technology except to read my books. It's me, myself, and God. Jeannie knows where I am, so if I don't come home on the fourth day, she can find me. But... Other than that, I am with God and with no one else. What I love about Catholics is that they have a practice of solitude that's well-established. So when I go to the refectory to eat my meal and I'm alone at a table, I don't have 20 people walking to me going, hey, what's your name? Can I sit with you? Because they know why I'm alone. I'm alone because I want to be alone. I need to be alone. So they leave me alone. I love that about the Catholics. If it was an evangelical conference center, I'd be like, can you please just stop greeting me like I'm lonely? I'm trying to be by myself. (laughs) So I love this place. They will leave you alone, and you get to have this time. And it's like a place out of a time warp. Everything there looks old and from the 1800s. 
And I sit there, and ironically, the first day is almost always spent in tons of sleep. That's my first remedy for sloth. I sleep. I don't realize till I get to my retreat how exhausted I've been, how completely depleted I was. Legendary football coach Vince Lombardi said that fatigue makes cowards of us all. When you are drained, you cannot fight any fight. You run from every fight. You're just done, partly because you don't have fuel in the tank. So I, my, that first day, I don't do much other than eat a really delicious meal somewhere. That's challenging in Vernon Hills, Mundelein, but I, I, I look for something. And then I sleep a lot. Then the next day, I actually feel ready to sit with God and take a long look. And I look long and hard at me, my team, my church, my wife, my children, my extended family. I sometimes go on a stroll down memory lane thinking about the story of how I ended up a pastor and whether where I am today is where God intended for me to be. I think about the job offers I get that tempt me to other cities and whether I am called to remain here or not because if I'm here, I don't want to be here because I'm afraid of other places where I'm addicted to these people. I want to be here because I'm called to be here. And so I renew those things when I'm away. And when I come home, I'm focused and refreshed. And in that place, what most happens is not rest and restoration. What happens for me so consistently in that place is what I most need to combat, sloth. And that is that I have an encounter with a living God. I don't just come back refreshed. What happens for me so often there is that I have a real sense that I was in the room with Jesus Christ. I, I write things and I speak things in that room that are not typical of the way I write and speak in my normal life. I get feelings and emotions I don't experience in other places. It's so powerful practice for me. And I know many of you <clears throat> have asked for something practical on top of the theoretical. This is the best thing I could give you. I mean, that bed is my best friend. This is what it looks like in the morning when I wake up. I shot that right out the window as I sit on the desk that's right there. I have my Bible and my notebook laid out in front of me, and I'm ready for a whole day to just dig in and take a long look. And I don't have an agenda. I used to. I used to have all these things stacked. I just go, God, I'm all yours today. Where are we going? And he takes me places. I have found that this practice has helped so much restore my perseverance in relationships that I'm, I'm tempted to give up on. Relationships that have been perennially less than fully satisfying. I've yearned for more, and I still haven't gotten it, but I'm waiting. And it's the way God meets me there that enables me to enter community again. I can't divulge the details, but I'll end by saying there are certain relationships that God has literally saved because of those retreats. I would have killed those relationships and walked away. I was so done in my spirit. And God has given me at these retreats some profound encounters that have restored my heart. And so I fight another day because I encountered him. 
That's the real takeaway, practically. It's not just rest a lot, but fight for an encounter with God. Carve out the space and the time. Pursue Him. Seek Him. He will meet you. I give this advice to so many people. So few actually take it. But every now and then, someone will rush up to me and go, Pastor Dave, I did that personal retreat thing. OMG. And I see it already in their face. They look different. Radiant. At peace. If you've never done it before, I encourage you to do it. And a few of the, the more scaredy cat dudes in my church were like, I want to do it, but I'm terrified of being by myself for like 36 hours. I go with them. And we do what I call a personal retreat together. We, <laughs> so here's what I mean. We book a room across the hall. I meet them. We eat meals together and talk about what we've been hearing from God. We pray, and I'll give them a little prompt. How about between breakfast and lunch today, you think about this and listen to God. And then I leave them alone, they leave me alone. So we have a large track of time, separate, but then I reconnect at a meal, and we talk and pray a little more. And that just gives them their first foray into the world of personal retreats, because it's so funny. They are actually terrified of being that alone with God. And it just helps to have Big Brother across the hall. <laughs> and, it, and it really does seem to bless them a lot. And so, if you want to do that, just ask Peter and Steve every, every week to go with you on a three-day personal retreat. They'll love it. They'll love it. Why don't we pray? Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have a few more things happen before the service ends. I'm going to just pray quickly for us. God, we want to just confess that some of us in this room right now are on the verge of quitting. And we're not quitting because we haven't tried. We're quitting precisely because we've tried. We have tried, and we have tried, and we have tried, and nothing seems to happen. And so we're tired and defeated and hurt. We know what you want us to do, but we confess that we are losing the will to give it. I pray, God, that you would rescue us from sloth. Restore to us the capacity to fight for love as a choice. To stay right where we are and watch the end of the stories that you write. Help us there, Lord. Some of us are in a different place of real desperation right now. We're not just hearing this with warning bells. We are right at the edge of the cliff. I pray, God, that you would powerfully pull them back. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us, in our own walk with you, such a powerful encounter with you that our hearts would be made new, not just from rest, but from being in your presence truly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.